What's up, Bikerimer fans? You know, it's been a while since we've partied with our friends at Lauf, so I gave my buddy Benedict a call to see what they've been up to and share a virtual beer. A lot has changed at their company over the past couple years. They went from a retail model to selling consumer direct. They had to pivot from having a US-based race director run the Rift gravel race to finding someone local. And they've been quite busy testing that full suspension gravel bike prototype. But mostly, they've just been selling a whole lot of bikes. We talk about all those things and how they've had to adapt to a changing team, changing times, and changing competition. I encourage you to listen all the way through because while the conversation is super casual, there are a lot of little nuggets in here about how the industry works, the retail landscape, and how their gravel suspension design is probably going to be pretty amazing. Please welcome Benedict Skulison. Hey, Benedict, welcome to the Bike Rumor Show. Thank you so much. How have you been? It's been a while since I've seen you. Yeah, I mean, I've never been better. I don't, I don't know if it's correlated to not meeting you for, for that long. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. No, I, I've never been better. Yeah, I, I kind of enjoy not traveling uh, during COVID. I love it. Yeah, you guys were on a bit of a tear and for a while. It's like travel constantly between the, you know, rotating through the team members there. But it's something I want to talk about a little bit more later. So we'll, yeah, yeah, we'll get yeah, to that. Definitely. But I want to say it's probably, geez, like two years or more, really. What was it? The Rift last time we saw each other? Yes, probably. 2019, right? Wow, it is two years. Yeah. Yeah, that's wild. You know, I'll be honest, man. Like, I didn't even know you guys were doing the riff this year. So we're recording this in September 2021, just to kind of timestamp what we're talking about and when we're talking about it. But um, let's just start with that. So the riff, the race you guys put on, you know, the gravel race in Iceland, which is amazing. How'd that go this year? Okay, I wrote it. Uh, so personally, <laughs> it was so tough. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, you've done it. You know, you know, it's tough. But, but I mean, this year it was. It was devastating. <laughs> like, like the headwind on the way back down from the mountains. It was just, I mean, you thought you were like done with most of it when you like hit the highest point. No, 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 no. <laughs> the way down, that, that was, that was the tough part. So it was super tough on me. And maybe I'm in mean, partly because I'm, I'm not in, maybe not in my, yeah, best shape ever. But I mean, I, I survived. I think uh, I overheard people saying like that the first 100k were like the best 100k they have ever had on a bike, while the second 100k were the worst 100k <laughs> they've ever had on a bike. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think we lucked out the first year. So when I did it was the inaugural year. And um, I, I mean, I think for Iceland, the conditions couldn't have been better. We had a little bit of the freezing rain, a little bit of hail even, but overall, it was kind of sunny, mild winds and Really just an amazing showcase of the landscape there, but sounds like. It was a bit perfect then. You got like the whole spectrum of weather, but still like, like you had the nasty stuff like there in the beginning. So you like had to push through that. And when you were done with that, it was all like nice, yeah. but it was kind of the opposite now. So <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe I'm so, glad I missed it. Yeah. The, uh, so that's like, it's kind of a good place to start in terms of, you know, just one of the many, many things that's changed at Lauf. You know, the first year you guys did it, you had Simran, who has her event company and puts on a lot of amazing events out in Utah. She actually ran that event and, you know, was the race director for the Rift and year one. But then last year, you guys kind of brought it in house, right? Yeah, outsourced it uh, in Iceland, partly because of COVID. COVID made 
outsourcing to the U.S. super tricky, obviously. I mean, traveling restricted and all that. So we ended up finding so Icelandic race organizers to take care of it or, or like, okay, not exactly maybe race organizers. So, so the main guy we, we recruited for this, his background is like organizing concerts. Hmm. I think he did both of Justin's when they came to Iceland. So yeah, that being Timberlake and, and, and Bieber. <laughs> so those being like huge, like 20,000 people, I don't know. I mean, yeah, huge concerts. Right. Uh, so, so he's, he's used he's, to crowds. Yeah. So he's used to crowds and like, I mean, I was amazed, like the, the, how they structured things and how, how like detailed everything was. It was just, it was like walking into a, a movie. Like they had like, had like a control center down at Kvalsvöllr uh, <laughs> where the race starts, where they had like lined up like big screens next to each other. And they had like uh, the rescue teams. They had them like constantly, basically uh, on, on the phone, basically. So they could always reach them and yeah, know where everyone was at. And it, it was, yeah, it was mind blowing. That's pretty cool. So how did, what were some of the biggest differences, you know, in terms of like, because I guess, you know, a concert promoter probably doesn't have a timing system yeah, and all that. He brought on this girl or woman that has organized a bunch of races. So she, she was involved in, yeah, some of the bigger like bike races that we've had in Iceland. So she like brought in like that knowledge. They uh, made like, yeah, this dynamic duo, the perfect yeah, combo sort of. Awesome. And then they, of course, like got like rescue teams and stuff on board as well. Did you use pretty much the same route as year one or did you guys switch it up a little bit? Yeah, exactly the same. Exactly the same. So that's like, at least for now, that's like the concept basically to have it the rift route because you, you really don't need to change it. I mean, it changes automatically for you. I mean, just <laughs> the weather. I mean, that's yeah. so this time it was completely different to like yeah, the one two years ago. Awesome. As far as the experience goes, like what's on tap for 2022? You could say that this was the rehearsal year for uh, the new organizers because like uh, we had 800 people registered for the race uh, initially and, and then like expecting like some hundred to, or 200 to be added on top of that, you know, like pro riders and, and, and all that stuff. So it was supposed to be like a close to a thousand riders uh, event. Like, uh, and, and I mean, you've been there in a town of probably thousand inhabitants so it's it's pretty yeah, it changes it <laughs> yeah yeah it is so uh, but due to covid uh, a lot of people like deferred uh, to 2022 so it became like 300 and something people uh, so next year we'll have that like 800 to 2000 people events so everything will be like scaled up a bit yeah, all the tents around it obviously and, and yeah everything very cool that'll be fun yeah. Do you have the dates set for that already? Yeah, we have, but I can't remember. It's always around <laughs> uh, the same time, like end of July, just because of like weather conditions that time of year being yeah, favorable. Well, I will, I'll put that on my calendar. I, I guess are the dates are already on the website so people can find it and book it. Yeah. Yeah. It should be, it should be. We're opening registration soon. I can't remember when exactly. I think it's like in a couple of weeks from now or something that we're opening registration. So by the time this episode airs that registration will probably be open. Awesome, man. Well, let's uh, let's dive into the business a little bit. So I want to kind of give people who aren't super familiar with your brand just a little bit of background and you can fill in any holes. But you guys started out as most bike brands do. Um, well, used to anyway, you know, trying to get into dealers. And I know between the, the team there, you guys made a really just incredible effort to open up shops throughout the US, get around to events and demo and support. I mean, I think you guys are traveling here like 
taking turns with two week stints in a box truck, just literally driving the country to visit shops, right? Yep, yep, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, we we did everything we could to to like build up our peer network for for a year or two, probably two years. Yeah, two years and a bit, probably. Uh, we spent on on like growing the dealer network, and, and we had it up to hundred and something dealers or so, which is respectable. Yeah, I mean, yeah, which is okay. I mean, uh, I mean, <laughs> and, and like volumes were volumes were going up, but it's sort of yeah, without you asking, uh, yeah, asking the question. So like, sort of the reason we shifted from that approach to direct to consumer is so as we kept going on that track, it just became more and more evident how it wasn't our track. We had great dealers. We had like, of course, we had bad dealers as well. I mean, it's just how it is. Uh, but we had many like awesome dealers that we really like miss like working with. But just like, like the numbers of it, I mean, for us, it just didn't work. Maybe part of that is that, I mean, that we are in Iceland and all that, and it's harder, of course, to like maintain the dealer base. But it's just, I mean, if you look at the volumes, if you look at the brands that really succeed in the dealer model, it's the brands that sell like hundreds of bikes uh, or thousands of bikes through each dealership. Uh, and to be able to do that, I mean, you need to have like a really wide lineup. You need to be a, a Toyota or, or, or you need to be a track or specialized or whatever, or Giant or Scott or, or, or whatever for the whole thing to, to really work. I mean, you need to have the economy of scale. I mean, so each visit you make to a dealer, then you're not selling him like a handful of high-end gravel bikes, but you're like, you're selling him, yeah, yes, of course, gravel bikes, but also like all the commuter bikes and, and everything. So the economy of scale just wasn't there for us. I mean, we were looking at maybe at least become like a, have a, have a portfolio as wide as at least salsa, for example. I mean, they, they don't have everything, but they have a lot. Yeah. They, as you say, they've got a pretty big catalog. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that was never my goal. So it's like the, the opposite of what we do. So what I like doing is making the product that I think and, and we think our team thinks is the best product for a specific task. I mean, take the true grit. I mean, this is supposed to be, I mean, we intended to be the best gravel race bike out there. And that's, that's our mission with that bike. But to become like, to have like the scale that, that, that you need working with dealers, you need to like, then you need to turn things around. Then you need to like give people everything that they ask for. And then you need to like fill in. I mean, you need to slot into every demand that the dealer have. While we are like on, on, yeah, on the opposite end of the spectrum, we want to make something and then convince people that they want it. And we want to be in a, like a, a narrow or, or not, not exactly narrow, maybe. I mean, gravel, of course, is, is like by definition a wide niche, I would say. But we don't want to make all these like me too bikes. We want to make a focused product. It didn't really make sense. I mean, to visit a dealer where like, I mean, if, when you think about it, if you're visiting a dealer and maybe like one thirtieth of his floor space and, and revenue and everything is high-end gravel bikes, we can't just visit that one thirtieth of, of a shop. I mean, we've got to visit, of course, the entire shop and, and make the entire trip over there. So it, it doesn't, yeah, it didn't really add up, unfortunately. So we, yeah, changed our, our strategy. Yeah. Did you find like when you go into a shop, I mean, I know like track and specialize have a lot of concept stores where uh, I like track, especially where it's just like all that it's sold. There is track and bond trigger products for the most part. But, um, yeah, there's a lot of shops that their, their anchors are like say Santa Cruz, right? Yeah. Did you ever run into a shop saying, well, you know, like we can't really carry just your one bike because we kind of have 
just a deal with the this brand that we're just going to carry their stuff, right? Or did you run into that where some of your competitors were blocking you out? Yeah, every now and then. But that wasn't like the biggest issue. I mean, the, the bigger issue was, I mean, uh, shops that really wanted to, to carry our stuff and, and they ended up like carrying it and, and taking it on because they, they loved the bike and loved what we were doing. But then really at the end of the day, I mean, of course, their focus is just keeping the lights on in their shop. Right. So, I mean, understandably that they can't put as much weight behind our brand as, as a brand that, that like they sell in every, uh, yeah, or, or, in, or in more like niches. Right. Uh, so, so we, we had that a lot. I mean, we had, I don't know. I mean, I can't, can't really remember a, a case with specialists, but let's say, I mean, if you have a, a dealer that does a lot of specialized and then they maybe give him like better terms on their bike, uh, if, if they reach a certain sales volume or something, then of course, I mean, that, that shop is going to be focused on, on like getting to that number because it saves them like a ton of money if they yeah. like get better terms on all of their specialized bikes. Yeah, it's it's tough, man. I, so, how is direct to consumer going? What was well? Actually, I want to talk about the people first because, so you know, just you guys are always some of the most fun to hang out with, and it was always such a joy meeting up with you guys. Like at the end of the day at Sea Otter, and it was just literally like the four musketeers. You know, you <laughs> Berger, Johan, and Gudberg. Yeah. Just you no know, matter. I mean, we had some good times, but we'll <laughs> leave it at that. But um. Group's not there anymore, man. And I think part of it was just people grow up and, you know, like had to do other things with their families, screw and all that. But I think some of it was this transition to a directing consumer sort of not to play on the word rift, but it's it sort of some people had one idea in the company and some people had another. Like what happened? I think you've like almost, almost answered your question. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, I mean, it is, yeah, bits of both. Of course. I mean, it's been a, I mean, it's been a long journey. I mean, it, it has taken us, yeah. I mean, we, we're 10 year old. I mean, we, wow. we, we turned 10, uh, this summer. So, I mean, of course, like the first years we just spent basically in a garage in Iceland, uh, where, where, where nobody saw us, uh, but, but I mean, but in total it, it's 10 years. So basically it's just, it's a bit like in a, in a, in a romantic relationship. I mean, <laughs> I mean, things change. Uh, it's just, uh, everything. Yeah. Everything changes. I mean, the, the company changes. And like going from like a garage company to what we are today, I mean, it's, it's a completely different animal and, and just uh, different things are required. It's only natural. I think that the team changes. It's tough at times. I mean, it's, it's, it's super tough. I mean, to stop working with a close friend, it's a bit tricky. Yeah. How is that relationship? Did you guys kind of leave on good terms? Are you still friends? <laughs> We meet every now and then, you know, I mean, of course, it's a little strange, like not working together anymore. That's definitely a bit, a bit weird. I mean, it's no way around that. It's just like me. It's a bit like meeting your ex probably or something. Right. <laughs> I mean, some, someone who you used, used to love and, and, and all that, but, but, but it just, yeah, doesn't work anymore somehow. Well, and you guys, I think don't all four of you have kids now. I mean, you've got families like that's that changes it too, right? Like, I mean, I hang out with friends a lot more before I had kids. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, I mean, so everything has changed. I mean, yeah, I mean, the company recently they shift to direct to consumer, and and that changes, of course, the focus on a, on a lot of things, getting families and all that. So, and and of course, I mean, starting a company like this from, from nothing, it's crazy work. The amount of work that old poor, poor team had to put in. I mean, it's, 
I mean, all, all these trips to the U.S. And I mean, of course, it was like for the most part, it was it was great fun. But I mean, it's also just a ton of work. It doesn't matter if it's fun. I mean, it's still really tough, and it and it like wears you out. Yeah, it does, and not just physically and mentally, like emotionally as well. I mean, it is because it's it's you know it's your baby. Everything you're doing is kind of riding on the success of this thing, and it's it's almost. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, for me anyway, like when I have you know getting bike rumor going and these other things, it's I almost feel guilty when I'm not working on it because I'm like, oh man, like I shouldn't be watching TV right now. I'd like to, I'm going to go back to work, right? Yep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, I'm not not complaining here. I mean, I have it great in life, and uh, and I'm doing what I love, and and, and it's awesome. Um, but I mean, it, it is like I, I can't go on a on a vacation. I mean, on a vacation, I get like all stressed up if I if I don't I mean, get to work. Basically, <laughs> I, I <laughs> so, feel so your pain on that purpose. one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you say you don't have it good though, but I I want to kind of use this as a quick little quote unquote sponsor break. So we actually have a beer sponsor for our podcast now, and I'll tell you who in just a second, but. You just finished a ride. You just got out of the hot tub. You've got yourself a coffee and a beer there. So yep, yep. it's not it's not a terrible Friday for you. No, I mean, life is good. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, I'm here in Akureyri. It's like, uh, yeah, some people say, uh, capital of the north of Iceland. Which is beautiful. I mean, you, We've yeah. been there. Yeah, which is, it's a beautiful place. It's, it's a small, it, it's like 20,000 people or so. And it's a beautiful location, like in a fjords here in the valley. Yeah. And the ride, the ride that you just did today is the ride we did when I was there. And it was just amazing. I mean, the views riding up above the cloud fog and gorgeous. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. We had beautiful weather that day. Yeah. And today's nice. actually pretty nice. I mean, for this time of year, it, it's nice. It's calm and, and yeah, mild. Cool. All right. So that's, that's me cracking open our sponsor's beer, which is Tin Barrel Brewing. And if you were here in the States, I would send you some. So I, I actually picked up beer. So what I did, like, okay, let me open this one. Let me see. Ah, open. Work someone with table. Damn. <laughs> it's almost like table. old times drinking together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or, 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 yeah, somewhere. Pretty seven. You're back. Yeah. So what'd you get? I, I did ask you to kind of check out Tim Burrell's website and see. Yeah. So I did. Similar. And, and, so what'd and, you find? And, and what I did actually, so. I'm into into sour beers. I like it. Oh, yeah. uh, I like them. They're refreshing, especially after a ride. So I actually uh, I looked up their sour beers, and, and then I I went into my fridge here and tried to mimic what I saw there. So <laughs> they they do have. Uh, I actually cracked open a, a hazy IPA or or hazy India pale ale. Yeah, IPA. I'm, yeah, okay. I'm so used I know, to just seeing the letters I IPA. That one. Yeah, it's profuse juice. It's pretty tasty, but they're sours, man. Yeah. yeah some limited edition ones this summer that are really, really good. Like pick a fruit and they made a sour out of it. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So this one I'm drinking, uh, maybe it's something for 10 barrel to, to pick up because it, it's really good. So it's, this is by Reykjavik Brewing. So we do stuff with them every now and then they have beers for our rides and, and stuff. And and this one actually, it's a sour, uh, with Icelandic skis, you know, you know, skis like the, the protein rich yogurts. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it has like a skier taste. It's just a really like, sour taste. So are they using like the, the lactose or something from that to uh, kind of give it that sour? Yeah, probably. I don't know how they, how they do it. But, nice. but yeah, it has the taste of Icelandic skier. So it, it's, it's, it's good. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. <laughs> All right on. All right. So tell me, like when you transition to 
consumer direct, like what was the hardest thing about that? Or maybe the two artists, I imagine there was a lot, you know, like telling your dealers, Hey guys, sorry. Like, I'm really curious how that went, but yeah. Tell me about that process. We were super worried about that one. Like, uh, how do we do this? Like, uh, because I mean, we mean no harm to the dealers. I mean, we liked working with those dealers. So that was a bit tricky. I mean, that, that break, or, or we like antip- anticipated, uh, yeah, to become tricky. It eventually like, like reinforced conviction in, in that this was the right move. Like how easy it was relatively to break up with the dealers because I mean, obviously we didn't account for a big chunk of the revenues. It was like they, they were sad to see us leave because they liked working with us and, and like the bikes and all that. But like at, at the end of the day, I mean, they were like, Hey, it's okay. I mean, we just sell more specialized instead. <laughs> right. So <laughs> yeah, it's not like you were their anchored brand and they just no. gutted their business. It was probably a huge sigh of relief for you to like, you know, like once you did it and you told everybody it's done, then you're probably just like, ah, okay. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. That was good to get that over with. And, and I mean, I was afraid of that one, but, but it didn't turn out to be as bad as it, I mean, as I feared. What was the worst part of it? Like what was worse than you feared? <laughs> Honestly, it's, uh, there aren't many things that have have been bad about it. It's, it's been, I mean, for us, I mean, of course, uh, uh, I mean, I don't want to like uh, put myself on a high chair and like tell people how to do things because I mean, every business and every scenario is different for, from, from the next one. I mean, so what worked for us doesn't necessarily like work for others, but, but like in our case, it's, it's just, it was just spot on. Yeah. One of the key things that we wanted out of this was, was to get like more control to become like more dynamic and, and like, for example, like to do like minor price changes on our bikes. I mean, now we can do that overnight. Basically, we can like raise up price by $50 or, or drop it by $50, like depending on prices from suppliers. I mean, we, we can just be like much more responsive in, in every single way. Uh, and we can add a spec level and, and we don't, don't need to coordinate with all the dealers. So everything just becomes so much like quicker and easier. What about logistics? Because I know you guys have tried to set up an office in the U.S. or a warehouse in the U.S., and I think you're you're looking at that again now. But I mean, clearly, if you're warehousing stuff in Iceland or Asia or wherever it is to ship it globally, or I'm kind of guessing that maybe the U.S. is one of your largest, if not the largest market. You know, like how do you deliver when it's one bike here, one bike there? Yeah, this is one of the things, one of the many things that went into the decision is that we were already like perfectly set up. Or, okay, maybe not perfectly, but, but really well set up for direct to consumer because we have like our assembly factory is in Taichung in, in Taiwan. And we have, I don't know the ins and outs of, of all, all the bike brands out there, but I do know that our setup is, is way more flexible than, than most. So we have like really good control of what is done uh, at the assembly plant and, and we like plan all the, all the purchasing and everything in detail. And so, so we have like good control of that side and then we ship them pretty much fully built from the assembly factory we were shipping them yeah pretty much fully built to the bike shops yeah, actually like for logistics there was like almost no change in, in like shipping directly to the customers that hmm. so we were like really well set up for that so having yeah our stock consolidated in Taichung and, and, and we built them to order for the most part so we built uh, so some bikes we have like pre-built in the shelf. Uh, yeah, let's say like vanilla bikes, bikes that we know that, that like ship fast. We try to like build them in advance a little bit. 
But then everything is just like on demand. If you place an order for a red extra large bike, I mean, they will just build it the next day and ship it out. And so, so this like setup, a flexible and dynamic setup that, that suits the direct to consumer model really well. So we, so we aren't ordering 300 bikes in, in this color and that size for delivery next year. So everything is just on demand. And that, of course, like suits the, the direct to consumer model really well. Yeah. Yeah, it keeps it super flexible. So how will that change once you set up a U.S. distribution center or, or office? Yeah, so basically, yeah, you know, I'll tell you more about that now uh, shortly. Uh, but basically, so what I told you about, like we're having some bikes pre-built in the shelves in Taichung, Manila bikes. We're going to amp that approach up a bit. So like the most common bikes, we will try to stock uh, at the U.S. location. So like replenishing every month or so, like by containers from, from, from Taiwan. And when customers order something that is like outside of what we have there, it's going to be like routed as we do at the moment. So directly from the warehouse. So bringing down the costs like massively, but like maintaining the flexibility by still shifting, let's say like 30% of the sales or something like shifting them. Yeah. Most yeah, largely as we do today, direct, yeah, built to order. Right. Do you find that there's like one or two sizes, colors, builds that are make up the vast majority, or is it kind of spread pretty broadly across what you offer? It's surprisingly spread across our, our colors and builds. So what we do is that we guide people towards like a single color. So what we do is we have our standard color being the lava black. We have it priced lower than the others. Uh, so that enables us to like pre-build those bikes and, and like be more economical in, in like building that, yeah, th those bikes. So that streamlines the factory significantly. So, so that way we can like keep like the bike builders occupied building those bikes. So whenever there's a downtime in, in building, yeah, more rare colors, they can always like jump into the standard one uh, and build that. So do you th is that color more popular because it's cheaper or is it cheaper because you make more of them because it's more popular? Uh, yeah, both. Yes. <laughs> yes and yes. <laughs> Interesting. So it works both ways. Yeah. So, yeah. So through price, we guide people towards that color. And then because more people are guided towards that color, we are able to have it cheaper. Interesting. Hmm. It was funny. I mean, we haven't had this for a while, but when we started pricing strategy of like charging, yeah, 390 extra for, for most colors. Uh, so actually 190 extra for. So we have one color that we call a swap color. Uh, so if you just like absolutely do not want a black bike, we have like one color, with, which is pearl white at the moment, that you can swap over to for, for yeah, very limited cost, 190. But then we, then it's 390 to, to go over to, yeah, the other colors. Mm. Uh, so at the beginning, I mean, uh, we had <laughs> some people that, that were like super frustrated about like, I mean, I mean, geez, I mean, does it really cost $390 more to, to paint a bike red? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it seems like a big upcharge to me. Like, I'm I'm a little bit shocked at that number, but is it, so why is that? Just volume or? Yeah, it's just volume. Actually, it's it, it costs almost the same to make those bikes. Like, each individual bike is almost at the same price. I mean, I mean the color red isn't more expensive to buy than, than black. But just to have more SKUs, that's, Add to cost like amazingly fast. Whenever you're adding a color to your to your portfolio, I mean, you're adding it to all sizes and all builds. So running a company with uh, so now we have like six colors, so four 
like premium colors, one swap color, one standard. It's just like massively more complicated than, than running a company with just one color. So all the stock keeping and everything becomes like so much more expensive. So, uh, I mean, in the end, I mean, 390 is for how we do it. It's a, it's a, like a super good value for like the, at the cost that we take on adding all those SKUs and adding the stock. Uh, when you think about it, I mean, let's say, I mean, yeah, if you take the extreme case, I mean, I mean, of course, I mean, our bikes aren't, aren't entry level bikes. I mean, it, it's like, I mean, I think we sell most of like carbon wheeled, like force explore bikes. And those are like five grand each. So just to, I mean, imagine like sit, sitting on hundreds of those because you have to have all the colors and everything. <laughs> you quickly get up to like millions of dollars. So it's very significant. And then, then of course, I mean, then if you take it further, so this was one of the, one of the things we changed at the same time as going for direct to consumer was that we like limited build options and color options. So we took it down to six colors and, and like stopped offering like custom colors and stuff. When you add, let's say you, if, if you, if you add uh, a completely like a custom color option, if you give customers the ability to like choose the decal color and, and everything for their bikes, you always run into the risk of something going wrong at your factory, the decal color not being like spot on as you as you intended or something. Because I mean, obviously, it's it, when it's a paint job, you haven't like quality controlled before, you haven't like practiced that that build. And then if you run into something, I mean, what are you gonna do for the customer? Because I mean, then it takes you maybe a few months to get get it right and and get what he initially like ordered. So all these delays and all these touches, and then you need to go back to the factory and like set things straight there and contact the customer and see if he's okay with waiting for several more months on his desired paint job and, and yeah, et cetera, et cetera. So, so it, it adds up like super fast. Yeah, I bet. Well, let's, um, real quick, let's talk future products. I know you guys have teased all manner of stuff. I think like a seat, a seat post, a full suspension bike, <laughs> What's, what can you tell me about the future of Lauf? It's interesting. It's very, <laughs> it's exciting. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> yeah, it really is. So, I mean, I can't give you any like details uh, or launch dates or anything. I mean, thankfully, we're, we're still super happy with our true grid as it is. If I could go back in time, I think uh, I would do exactly the same again. But it doesn't mean that it, that it ends there. Of course, I mean, uh, as you know, I mean, we have super fun stuff that we are working on you're probably like i'm assuming like most interested in in uh, like the rear suspension frame sure i mean i think that's the biggest technological product you guys are working on like i forget the details of it i should have looked it up before i called you but the um the seat seat post kind of like micro suspension concept like that's interesting but yeah that full suspension stuff is pretty rad like how's testing going because you guys have been testing that for quite some time now yeah 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 definitely we have it is super exciting. So, I mean, we have written uh, several prototypes already, and, and and it's, I mean, it's honestly, it's mind-blowingly good. It's it's <laughs> crazy how good it is. It's just, I mean, the fork is obviously, I mean, I don't want to be the one like judging it, but I mean, people can look up, and I think it's like universally like liked in the gravel space. But the rear suspension, it, it just, it will take things to a to a whole new level. It's just. Partly because it, it's an easier engineering task to yeah this at the rear than the front. A fork obviously is just like a a basic fork is just like a yeah straight 
thing. I mean, uh, two fork legs, and, and it's really hard to like build suspension into that. I mean, uh, you need to like get some, make some degrees of freedom to, I mean, get the leaf springs in there and all that. Yeah. And you got to worry about the brakes, you know, moving along in parallel, keeping the axles, you know, the axle perpendicular. I mean, there, yeah, there is a lot going on there that you don't have the benefit of like a, a triangle design in the rear to kind of keep it all stiff. So is there anything you're learning from the rear suspension project that you can apply to the forks? Maybe. I mean, uh, I'm, uh, <laughs> so I, I don't, I don't, I know. I honestly, I, I don't need to like hide anything here. I, I, I <laughs> Uh, I, I don't I don't foresee big changes to the forks. Obviously, there are always some things that can be done, but we still haven't found anything that we really want to do that would like add more benefits than downsides. So we really like it just as it is. I mean, being yeah, just simple and, and functional and, and yeah, maintenance free and, and yeah, and all that. But like at the rear, it's just like uh, it's, it's, been, it's it's two things. So what you mentioned, uh, like structurally, it's much easier because you have the triangle there. I mean, you have like uh, to work from, you have this yeah triangle shape I and mean, you have chain stays and the seat stays and, and yeah, yeah a much like bigger, like bracing angle of things to keep things lateral stiff and all that. So you don't need to be like super creative to get lateral stiffness when you're building like compliance into a frame. So that makes like the engineering task of designing something that gives similar flex to our, our, our fork and similar comfort makes it yeah, so much easier. But then also what we found out is that a huge benefit is actually how yeah, it's, it's related to how a bike is written. When you think about it, I mean, when, when, you, when you're on a bike, like 90 some, something percent of the time you, you are like sitting on a saddle. Yeah, at least. Uh, which means that, yeah, at least, at least, I mean, 90, I mean, let's say 97% of that or, or more maybe. So obviously you would want to like optimize your suspension for that load. So that load scenario of you sitting and, and pedaling your bike. But the tricky thing with a fork is that every now and then you stand up. Let's say you do a sprint. You stand up, go over the handlebar and sprint. Then you put so much more weight on the front. So the fork you design or, or we design, it needs to be able to cope with that load scenario. You know, when, when you stand up and put your weight on the front. So basically we need to set the fork stiffer than what we would prefer. I mean, if you were just like always sitting, always just like paddling, sitting on the saddle. So we're like limited by the load scenario of when you like occasionally stand up because the fork also has to handle that. But like on the rear, it's, it's the opposite. You, you can just optimize it like spot on for your paddling. And then when you stand up into a sprint, you're like barely loading the rear suspension, which means that you can have it like much more compliant when you sit on it. Because, I mean, when you really push it, it's not in the equation anymore. So we don't need to worry about it. Yeah, that's really cool. I'd never really thought about it that way. But, yeah, I guess normally when you're talking full suspension, I'm thinking about mountain bikes where you're standing a whole lot more and really using kind of like you're moving your body back and forth over the undulations of the terrain. So it's it's a totally different ballgame. That's pretty cool. Definitely. So, the, I mean, we found out that this was like, this made, or enables us to like make it like super compliant at the rear, but still without any like issues. That's very interesting and, and exciting. But, but I mean, how close are you? Or, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. I, I imagine even if you had it dialed right now, you're ready to hit the go button. There's all manner of production delays right now and, and other, you know, supply chain issues and everything else. So, like, what's, uh, how has that affected this project? 
Yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, if everything, I mean, if we didn't have the COVID thing going on, I mean, it will still be 18 or 24 months away. Wow. I mean, if we push play now, basically, uh, it'll be like 18 months away. And we are not pushing play anytime soon. I mean, we are not there yet. There are a lot of details that we still need to like dial in. Because it's it's like it's so different now. I mean, you remember like back in the days when we came up with our forks initially. I mean, then we were just like a, a garage company basically coming out with something we had invented and, and like throwing it out to, into the market and see how people would like it. <laughs> and now it, it's it's different. I mean, when we yeah, when the day comes that we launch rear suspension, I mean, in three years or whatever it, it may be, it needs to be ready for yeah mass production and without any like hiccups and stuff and. It, there cannot be any like quality issues or, or whatever. So we so we have to like really figure all those things out like beforehand. We cannot like put it into the market and then figure it out. It'll be yeah, way too much. Yeah. Is it I, I imagine there's gotta be some modularity to the system because you know, you might have me who's six two, like one eighty five, but then I got a friend who's six three, two forty. We can't sit on that same frame and expect the suspension to work. So how how have you built in kind of like uh, different spring rates or whatever. So it's basically, I mean, yeah, without like giving anything that is already uh, publicly available. I mean, if you look at our like our patent applications, we have this like adjustability option. So we're finding it to be very like beneficial to be able to adjust the give in the rear. Cool. So that that's that's our current. I mean, that I can I can disclose that. I mean, our current prototypes have adjustable adjustable flags at the rear. Cool. Yeah, and we've covered that patent, so I'll put a link to that in the show notes for this episode. That it's definitely worth checking out. Yeah, I just didn't know if anything had changed or. No, I mean it's. Uh, I, I guess hope... you got the patent, right? Has it been granted, or is no, it, it still it, a pending? It, no, it takes a long, long time. I mean, it's. I mean, uh, I think I can safely say, safely say now that we will have a patent, but it's it takes years to like to like get the stamp on it. Like it goes into the international phase, and then it's like 18 more months and like, yeah, yada, yada. Is that part of the decision to keep from pushing the go button? Like, are you going to, do you need to wait for that patent to be approved before you start making it? No, 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 we, we, no, definitely not. Uh, so basically to have a patent issued, it, it doesn't really change much. Uh, so as long as it's uh, like likely to become published, that will keep others from infringing because then then they know okay shit this will eventually be like granted a patent and as it stands now it, it's it seems pretty obvious that we will get a patent uh, and then like in that scenario i mean nobody else will like throw in any r d money in, into a project that, that yeah we will eventually probably get a patent for yeah i mean why would you dump money into producing something and building up tooling and all that just to have to stop <laughs> yeah exactly you need to have all the luck in the world i mean then, then our our patent applications would need to fail somehow or something and then yeah <laughs> but it's yeah it, it doesn't make for a good business case to to do that i would think absolutely not just throwing good money down the drain really right on man well like so for people who aren't super familiar with lauf before we wrap up what would you want them to know? And I just want to throw a plug in for your handlebar just because I think it's one of the best handlebars out there. It's If you haven't ridden it, I highly recommend trying to find one somewhere and uh, checking it out. Just the flex, the shape, everything. It's it's just a fantastic handlebar for road, gravel, whatever, any drop bar, anything really. Actually, I should ask, any developments on that? Because it does seem like a lot of 
brands that are uh, launching or, you know, just kind of refining their gravel handlebars are adding a lot more flair. And, you know, yours has a little bit, but I've kind of come to really enjoy sort of a wider flair on the gravel bars, you know, especially for like descents and just being able to transition smoothly from the hoods down to the drops and back. Yeah, it's yeah. it's kind of nice. Yeah, I, I don't know. So honestly, I personally don't have a lot of experience with like, yeah, these super wide flared bars. I'm a bit hesitant. I, I like for it to be like they're somewhere in between. I mean, I like it to feel a bit like a road bike, but still giving all that control of, of having a flared bar. So I'm not convinced that we will go and uh, go for a wider flare. Right. Okay. Well, you guys also have a, it, it's like, I, I'm actually staring at it right now on a bike in my office here. Yep. It's the angle and the the drop, the shallowness of the drop, I think makes up for some of the lack of extra flare. Because some of them, they drop more. And so like that extra flare comes in handier than your other days. But anyway, so what else would you want somebody to know about Lauf? I don't know. It's just, yeah. <laughs> uh, outside of what we've already discussed. I mean, are you still making the mountain bike fork? Cause I, my impression is that got your name out there and it was unique and special and cool for a very, very, very small niche. But the gravel stuff is what's put you guys on the map. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent, hundred percent agree. I mean, uh, we are like moving more and more away from the mountain bike stuff because initially we were going for like making you know this. I mean, our fork for mountain bikes basically turns a mountain bike into a gravel bike. <laughs> <laughs> and now you've come so, full circle. Yeah, yeah, it, 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 it's a, yeah, it's a bit like that. So, I mean, we were always into gravel bikes, but, but we just didn't know that there would ever be something called a gravel bike. Right. I mean, we, we were into changing like uh, hardtails into into gravel bikes. So, I mean, we we really feel at home, like in in the true grid space. So, I mean, I think that will be. I mean, whatever happens in the future, I think that will be like the nucleus of, of what we do. To be honest, I don't know how much or, or when or, or, or what we will do like outside of like the true grid space, how much we will go down like towards a road bike or up towards a mountain bike. I don't know. But like, I think the application for our fork is like it's it's spot on in the true grid slot, I think. Cool. Put it this way. If we go all in into mountain bikes as well, I doubt it would use like a love, like a leaf spring fork i mean i think it's just better suited for gravel yeah well i mean even cross-country bikes <clears throat> are going to 120 mile travel and forks now kind of almost is a standard right and you guys are at 60 for your mountain bike fork and what is it 30 or 40 for the gravel i forget 30 30 30 and, yeah. and, and personally i think 30 is i mean i think, I think that's a sweet spot i mean when it, when we go for like the 55 or something or 60 that, that the mountain bike forks have then then you begin to i mean you add benefits uh, but you also add downsides but, but at 30 uh, to me it's like it's a, it's a no-brainer that then you get benefits but still you're not getting the downsides of, of having more last question somebody customer in the u.s wants to demo your stuff because you know five grand bike is not cheap and you know i would want to test ride it first how can people demo do you guys have a demo van running around yet or is it you know what's the demo program looking like We've had like, I would say like no issues with this because I mean, sales have been super strong. So it's not necessarily a huge priority for us to like supercharge sales that much. But then again, we are, we are adding. So currently we have like a 14 day, like a return window for people, but they cannot ride the bike. 
so they can like test, uh, like fit it in their living room and see if it fits and, and all that. Then they can return without cost if they dislike it for some reason. But we are now going for soonish, probably by the time this airs, we will have gone for like a 30 day test drive program, basically. So where you can like buy the bike and then if you just don't like it for some reason, you can just return it. Very cool. And this is not anything new. I mean, all the brands have done this, but I think like in our case, I think it will be huge because I mean, we know that the fork has gotten good reviews and all that and, and, and a lot of people are, are liking it out there. But of course, I mean, if I put myself in the, in the position of living somewhere like, I don't know where in the US and, and not having a friend that has a true grid bike and, and then throwing, like you say, five grand on the bike and, and, it, and it has this fork that I've never tried, even though I read good reviews on it at all. I personally, I, w- I would stay away and just buy something safer. Well, something that you can walk into a shop and, you know, put your hands on and try, right? Yeah, exactly. Or like, I mean, like, I mean, most of the other, probably uh, even yeah, all the other online brands, I would think I mean, you, you can, in most cases, you can say like, yeah, this bike from this online brand X, it's the same bike as this bike from Specialized or something. You can easily like relate it to something that you maybe already have. Maybe you have a, a Specialized gravel bike, an older model. Then you can just see like, okay, yeah, the geometry is roughly the same as, as on that bike. And there are no like, there's no funny business <laughs> going on. Mm-hmm. There's no like strange leaf spring uh, things on it. So you can like buy it confidently. Of course, we don't have that since we're like pushing the envelope a bit on a frame and four. Yeah, I imagine you do some competitive research or kind of keep tabs on what's going on, what's coming out, what other brands are doing. Is it, I would think that a lot of bikes are going to start having a geometry more similar to yours, at least the front end, only because, you know, you've got now RockShox launched the Rudy, Fox has a gravel fork, SR Centaur has a gravel fork. And I, I think some of these are starting to get some OEM spec and stuff. So, you know, you want a suspension corrected geometry and, and you guys have that and have had that from day one, really. So I guess that's probably a good thing if frames are coming with geometry that's going to work better. Honestly, I like seeing the, the Rudy coming out because it or was a Rupee. I can't remember. Can't remember. Yeah, Rudy. <laughs> Rudy or Rupee. Yeah. Then, yeah. Yeah. The new RockShox Gravel Fork. Because I mean, for what it's going to do for us is it's going to like normalize having suspension on your gravel bike. Then people are going to like, first they're going to like realize that they want rear suspension for the gravel bike. Then they're going to look into, I mean, do I prefer these benefits or all these benefits? So I think, uh, and, and for a lot of people, I mean, I, I believe our fork will be yeah what they should go for because it has certain advantages. Well, the yeah of course I mean the RockShox fork, RockShox forks have their advantages, but like all in all, I think it will just be good for us. So that's just good with the geometry. I mean we're seeing yeah lately it's a Canyon Grizzle, of course. I mean that's like suspension corrected, it's ready for for that fork and and yeah and being fitted with that new fork. Uh, and we're seeing like I think and it's not just the fork we're seeing also just like the the head angle and and stack and reach. We're seeing like more and more brands coming out with geometries that are like are similar to ours. I would say the, the Grizzle is similar to ours. It has steeper head angles though. I don't know why that is, but, but I mean, like the stack and reach of, of, of that bike is, is it's a similar thought as in our bike. Yeah. I was thinking just kind of like, yeah, head angle and kind of the axle to crown measurement is what's going to make it super easy for somebody to get a frame and then, you know, upgrade or swap to your fork. Exactly. Exactly. I was a bit surprised on the head angle on the Grizzle. So it's, it's, uh, I can't remember exactly, it was like 71.5 degree or so, something like that. So it seems a 
bit steep, but then maybe again, maybe like adding the suspension fork is maybe going to like raise it a touch and then, then it becomes slacker. That, that could be the case. I'm not sure. But it's it's amazing like how much like a head angle changes your bike handling. I mean, it, it's it's crazy. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, that's kind of the main thing because, you know, it's funny you talk about like fork trail and offset and all that, but most of the time it's like a couple millimeters. But, yeah. you know, a, a half a degree head angle can change it by way more than that down at the wheel. Yeah, I mean, it's a huge difference. I mean, when we did like testing for a true grit and changing it by half a degree, I mean, it's a world of a difference. Yeah, that'd be fun to ride a test wheel sometime with that adjustable and just like back to back and just see what the difference is. Because it's, I mean, we can do it, but it's it's really hard to do when you don't have like something that's, you turn a screw and it changes. Yeah, did, did you see how we how we did it? Yeah, I, I know I've seen some of your test mules and they're, <laughs> they're like giant yeah. steel contraptions. <laughs> they're kind of funny looking. No, no this, this one was sweet actually. So we took a Niner RDO steel version. Because steel is so flexible. So what we could do on the Niner was that we could like cut the top tube <laughs> uh, and then just put like a, a steel rod inside of the top tube that, that fit or like that was machined to fit like perfectly into it. Right. And then just just like clamped it on both sides. So we could like we could expand the top tube or make it shorter. So by like expanding the top tube or making it shorter, we changed the head angle of the bike. <laughs> That's pretty funny. <laughs> So I mean, super efficient. So, it works. Yeah. yeah. I mean, simpler is better as long as it doesn't break and kill you. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> awesome. Cool, man. Well, I know it is uh, getting on on a Friday afternoon now, early evening for you. So I will yep. let you go. I appreciate the time, Benedict. And as always, it's awesome. Likewise. Talking and, you know, virtually drinking a beer with you. Yeah. Likewise. Likewise, mate. And, and, yeah, hope to see you soon. Hope 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 we don't have two more years. Yeah, I, I hope so too. Yeah. <laughs> we'll make it happen. <laughs> All right. Awesome. All right. See you. All right. Thank you so much. Ciao. Hey, thanks for listening. Huge thanks to Ten Barrel Brewing for supporting the show. If you live somewhere in the West, I highly recommend you grab some of their sours before summer's over. They really are some of the best I've had. And how can you not like a company whose tagline is drink beer outside. If you haven't already, hit subscribe to the Bike Rumor podcast on your favorite player so you don't miss any of our killer interviews with the people behind the bikes and components you love. And if you like this, could you tap that button on your app to give us a quick five-star rating and a quick review? That's the currency of podcasts, and it really helps us reach way more people and keep getting great guests for you. You know, this conversation really reminded me of just how much I miss hanging out with all of our industry friends. Let's get through this so we can all get riding together again. Stay safe, wear your masks, and until next time, keep the rubber side down.